Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History, and on Twitter at Snapshots in. I'm a little more awake this morning than I typically am. I fell asleep last night, so I didn't see the end of the Sharks game, uh, the Sharks-Blues game. So uh, you at least get an attentive Brett this morning, as opposed to the last few weeks where I've been half asleep recording this at like 4 a.m. At least it's a little bit, uh, it's still 4 a.m., but I'm at least a little bit more awake. But man, we had some controversy last night. I wake up to see my phone blown up with text messages and Twitter messages. Can you believe that the officials got it wrong? Can you believe they screwed up? And I don't know if I've ever really talked about this on the show, but I do have a little bit of a background in officiating hockey. I I did officiate at a, a decent level. I worked in the Southern Pro Hockey League for a little bit. And um, I have several friends that are in the American Hockey League and, and various leagues. So I'm familiar with the officiating side from the official standpoint, which I think is is unique. Once you've done that job, it kind of gives you a different perspective than what you might have from just watching it at home. At least in my opinion, it gave me a different perspective. And the officials did screw up last night. They screwed up. There was definitely a hand pass, but I don't blame them and say that this was what cost the St. Louis Blues the game. I think what cost them the game was the NHL rule book. There's a big issue that hand passes are not reviewable, which doesn't make sense to me. In fact, in my opinion, the NHL should just go ahead and change the rule altogether and say any goal in overtime should be reviewable. I don't think it would be that hard either. It's kind of a catch-all. Right after the team scores the goal, the officials, all four of them, go over to the box. They watch it on the instant replay just to make sure it counted and then call it a night. That way we don't have issues like what we had last night because the bottom line is officials are going to make mistakes. In fact, every single game, players make more mistakes than officials do. How many passes do we see missed and checks do we see missed? That's how goals get scored is when people make mistakes. So officials are no different. They're going to make mistakes. I just hate for them to be the scapegoat for a team and for fans to be upset with them because they were just doing their job and they made an honest mistake. That's the official in me saying this, so I I guess take it with a grain of salt, but that's just how I feel about it. Anyways, awesome feedback on part one of our interview with Roman Vopat. We're back for part two. During part one, we covered all of the trades that took place. Still can't get over how many he did. We pick up part two right where we left off at part one when he was just in his coach's office, breaking down in tears and was heading to the Philadelphia Flyers. If you're a Flyers fan, you'll love this interview. He talks about Eric Lindros, Keith Jones playing in Maple Leaf Gardens during the last season when the Maple Leaf Gardens was used. It's great stuff on this. We'll go ahead and cut to that interview now. Here's part two of our interview with Roman Vopat. And I love that you, 24 hours before this, were thinking about quitting hockey. Or not even 24 hours, really that day. That would less, yeah. You get into the lineup, you play for one minute and seven seconds, but oh my God, do you kick off your first uh, start with the Flyers? They must have gone crazy. You nail Victor Inyetev, I can't pronounce this guy's name, in the corner with a huge hit, and I saw it on YouTube. 
He would end up leaving the game with a shoulder injury, and, and you'd go on to play with another young guy, Dana Zugris and Mike Sillinger. Yeah. What do you remember about the Flyers-Pittsburgh rivalry? And here, you get thrown right into it, and you contribute. Well, uh, you know, I uh, like it was so happened so quickly. You know, I get to uh, the Pittsburgh arena, and, you know, I have meeting here, meeting there with, uh, with uh, Roger Nielsen and, and uh, Greg Ramsey, and Greg's shown me some video how – how uh, how their style, how they're playing. It's just everything happened so quickly. So uh, I was overwhelmed, you know. So then you sit there beside Eric and John LeClaire and, and Michael Renberg, and Man. you're actually thinking to yourself, holy Christ, I'm on a team with these superstars. Okay, I'm, I have an opportunity to be part of something big here in Philadelphia. And I cherished it. And, I, and it made me happy. Finally, I was happy sitting on a bench with those guys, it actually made me happy. Whether, and then I didn't play the whole game, and I remember two minutes left, Roger Nielsen tapping my shoulder. He says, oh, we got to give you a shift so it counts. So he puts me out there. My, my legs are dead. I haven't, I haven't have a shift in the whole game, and you got only two minutes left. Uh, so we're winning the game, and I remember I got a puck before the red line. I'm dumping it in the corner. Ignatieff is going to get it. I says, well, I better finish the check. And that was his actually, that's funny you mentioned that. That was his first shift too. So, <laughs> he's, going, so he, he's going for the puck. He's probably cold too. I got to do my job. So I, I finished the check. I separated his shoulder. And I remember Chris Tamer wanted to fight me after that. So everything happened so quick. And that shift was felt like an eternity. And and I thought, okay, well, I finished the check. Hopefully, I made some impression on Roger, and and hopefully that will help me uh, to stay in the lineup for upcoming games. Bobby Clark, as I mentioned, was in the process of transforming this team. They had made the Stanley Cup Finals uh, just a year or two before, but only eight or nine players were left. One player yeah. that you talked about who had come in, and it sounds like he was a close friend of yours, is Keith Jones. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Keith and, and tell people what he's like? Oh, like funniest guy you can imagine. Very smart hockey player. His hockey sense was, you know, it was unbelievable. Like he was a, such a good player. That's, you know, and he was not the greatest skater, mm-hmm. but he was great around the net. He knew how to put the pucks in the net. He was an agitator. He was everything that, you expect from a player. He could put the pucks in the net. He could make a play. He could also get under your skin so easily and draw so many penalties. And that's why he was so valuable for the Flyers organization. Off the ice, could he also get under your skin there? Oh, yeah. Jonesy, uh, Jonesy was good. His wife was still in uh, Colorado. So we hang out uh, We hang out quite a bit, me, him, and Eric. And, and like I said, I could not think, them, uh, think enough of that. I feel like for the first time, you've actually found like a little bit of crew that kind of you can hang with as a young guy. And that's so important. And going into early December, the Flyers are a decent 12, nine and five. And on December 13th, you take a trip to play against the Maple Leafs, who were 15, 10 and two. But what I think what makes this special is this is the Flyers last trip to Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, I know you didn't grow up looking at that building and, and seeing that building and everything that it meant to the NHL. But what was kind of the feeling like playing in that building? Well, I'd I, I be quite be honest. I was not even playing in that game. Like I was, but I'm not supposed to. It was a, I was a healthy scratch. So 
I didn't eat, I skipped the, the team meal. I said, well, I'm going to go for sushi. So I went downtown Toronto, went for a sushi. And then uh, uh, during that time, uh, uh, Philly and uh, Tampa made a big trade. Then, yep. And, and it was Michael Redberg, Damon yeah, Lankell in exchange for Chris Gratton and Mike and Sillinger. Chris Gratton, Mike Sillinger. Yeah. So I, I got back to the hotel and they were saying, where are you? We were trying to get hold of you for the last two hours. I go, well, I just went for the sushi. I says, well, you're in. I go, I beg your pardon? Yeah, says, yeah, you're in. You're playing. I just had, you know, I I had sushi for crying out loud for a pregame meal. So, yeah, so got to the rink, got dressed, never been in Maple Leaf Garden ever. So this was my first time. And, and like you said, Flyers, that was the last uh, game that Flyers would play in Maple Leaf Garden. And I enjoyed that time. That was unbelievable. Like the ceremony and everything was, everything was great. Uh, I think I got into a fight with, uh, I'm not even sure. I might get in a fight with Chris King that game. I believe it and, was. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, like I said, everything worked out perfect. And that was one of my greatest moments. And this was, we talked about that trade that kind of took place as Bobby Clark is really transitioning the team. What did yeah. you think of Bobby Clark? Did you spend much time with him? Did you chat with him at all? No, but he uh, called me in, uh, in his office. I don't remember exactly for after how many games. And he says, okay, well, you're here to stay. I'm going to put a little bit of less pressure on you. You're, gonna, you're here to stay. You're going to find a place. And that finally chip came off to my shoulders. I could relax a little bit and, you know, just concentrate on hockey. Or I could unpack my stuff out of my suitcase. And, you know, just finally I could just, relax and become a hockey player again on December 22nd a few weeks after returning to the Flyers head coach Roger Nielsen reunited the famous Legion of Doom line which included John LeClaire Michael Renberg and team team captain Eric Lindros you saw these guys up close and you played with Stastny you played against Gretzky you've played against so many players so many good lines where would you rank this line talent wise that you saw you know in your career in your playing years number one number one Number one, I, in my mind at that time, it was the, I believe it was the best line in hockey. It was they had so much skills, so much strength. They had the size. Like I said, Eric Lindros could kick the shit out of you, win the game by himself, and score as many goals as he can. John Leclerc, big man, extremely strong. Could score. Yeah, I think he had two consecutive 50 goals uh, seasons. And Michael Renberg, same thing. One of the strongest men I ever played with. Fast. Could put, put the pucks in the net. I think they had everything. They had the skill. They had the size. They had the strength. I think there was the most dominant line in hockey. And you'd been with the team now for a little over a month. So where do you find your place in the team? We have that dominant line with the Legion of Doom line. Where do you fit in with everybody and in, in on the ice? Oh, I, I know my, my I know my role was you know being physical as an energy guy, so fourth line guy, and, and and I expect that, and I and I was fine with it. I was ha- just happy to be part of something. I was you know it, in my mind, I, I, I was thinking you know I'm, it could be part of again winning the Stanley Cup. So I was willing to do what's necessary to make the team better and. To help the team succeed so uh if whether it's in, in in the fourth line whether it's in you know even in the stands i was willing to actually you know just watch the games from up top and just to be part of the team 
that made me happy. And for 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 a lo- first time in a very long time, I was actually happy, and I was happy to play the game. Heading into January, Bobby Clark had brought in ten new faces since that prior spring. Given that you'd already bounced around a bit, are you concerned and kind of scared that this guy's not willing to, or he's willing to trade guys? Could that be me again? Well, you can, you know, I, I, if you start, we're able to add again, and then, then you're concentrating on something else other than play the game. You, you got to control what you can, and that's all in your own performance. And I, like I said, I try to bring maximum I could every day, day in, day out, and wait for my chance to play. And when I did play and, you know, and get some opportunities, I want to make my best of it. So, whether I play three minutes, whether I play 11 minutes, I want it to be best three or 11 minutes of my career. So uh, I couldn't really worry about if I'm going to get traded again. You know, those are the things that you can't control. And if Bobby Clark decides to trade me, well, then that's the way it is. And and uh, I was happy. I was fortunate enough to, to stick around to the rest of the year with the team. And, and it made me better a hockey player, made me a better person. The team was red hot at this point, posting a record of 6-0-5 during the prior 11 games. Unfortunately, around this time, though, Eric Lindros suffered a concussion in a game against the Calgary Flames. I know you were close with number 88, and I feel like there's a lot said about him, some good, some bad. Your experiences sound like they were nothing but good. Yeah. Set the record straight, though. What's he like off the ice? I have, I you know, like I like I agree with you. There were some good things, some bad things said about Eric. I have not one bad thing to say about him. He uh, brought me to his home. He uh, uh, tried to help me as much as he could. Um, you know, we, uh, we hung out quite a bit because he was a single guy. You know, uh, I didn't, I did not have my uh, girlfriend back then there with me yet. So we hung out quite a bit, and for every, anything I accomplish in that organization, or from that moment forward, I gotta give him a credit for quite a bit. He, uh, he, you know, he was a good mentor on the ice, off the ice, and he worked with me uh, after practices on the ice, around the nets, just try to show me some ropes, and he was fantastic to me. So I have not one bad thing to say about him. Sounds like an awesome, just older brother almost. And I, yeah. I, I've i got to ask, the fan in me has to ask, he's at the height of his career. What is Eric Lindros's house like at this time? Oh, beautiful. I, I mean, just, I'm picturing this, this awesome condo or something like that. Like that's No, just- he, uh, he lived with, uh, he was actually with where the most guys live. I think he lived in Voorhees, uh, New Jersey. And then uh, uh, Dave Babbage lived right beside him. Uh, Eric Desjardins, Eric Desjardins lived down a couple streets down from him. Um, old Samuelson lived there just down the street, you know, so they live in the neighborhood of, uh, where our practice facility was and, and, uh, his house is for, for bachelor. It was immaculate. Oh my God. That's awesome to hear. It sounds like it was a real community as well. And, yes, and uh, yeah. so it's, yes. it's clear that he's a little OCD and likes to keep things clean. We talked about concussions, and, and this is such a huge topic nowadays. Yeah. Eric had suffered one. At the time, did people, and, and I don't even know if you'll have an answer for this, I always knew that if you got a concussion, you got your bell rung, it wasn't a good situation. But how did people in the league feel about concussions then? Did, they, they didn't at all. I, I don't think they were, they knew concussion happens, but they didn't. Uh, 
no one's and again if you have a concussion i think you have to be treated i know now by neurologists you can't right. you know back then we just had a trainer and trainers give you a smell and salt and says uh, how many fingers i have four or five okay well you're good to go mm-hmm. and that's just the, that's just the way it was and uh, and recall i recall back then when i was in la i got knocked out by dolly wood and that was Tuesday, and I played a game against St. Louis two days later. Mm-hmm. So, really, did I want? And and it's got a lot to do with and players. You know, I, I can only speak for myself. But if I have an opportunity to play, even dazed, I played. I oh. did not want to. I did not want to miss the shift. I did not want to be a healthy scratch. Because once you miss a game and there's a scratch, somebody else could replace you in that spot. And I did not want that to happen. So I, I think back then, I you know, you got to put more blame on the players than the trainers. But um, I did not want to miss a game. Not even a bit. Not even one. No. Oh, my God. Especially for you. You're 19 years old. You've been bounced around a little bit. And, and you're looking for every opportunity you can to prove that you belong there. Someone tells you you're not playing. I would imagine you'd probably go nuts on them because that's your livelihood, and I think yeah. people don't realize that. It's it's man, I yeah, wow, I, I it's something I never really thought about. On January 12th, you finally have the opportunity to play against your brother, but you did say to me a little earlier ago. I have it in my notes, but you guys never did play against each other. Yeah, we played. I I'm not sure if he played that game or he was scratched. Maybe he played, but I don't really call it because, you know, I didn't really play a lot against Nashville sure. uh, that time in Philly. Uh, but I remember we won the game, and I got an assist, I think, on uh, Alexander Dagel's goal. But, uh, yeah, I don't really recall if he played that game or not. There's a guy that I'm sure had plenty of pressure over his career, Alexander Dagel. First round pick, first overall, and never really kind of turned into the player that I think a lot of people predicted he would be. Do you have any ideas or thoughts of maybe why that didn't happen? I think his ego stood in his way. I think he, uh, yeah, I think. uh, You might have not fought your brother against the Nashville Predators, but you had plenty of fights during this time. You fought Chris King, Dale Hunter, Grant Marshall. Do any of these fights stick out to you? I mean, I was watching, I think you fought Rick Tockett as well. I was watching the game last night. Again, didn't really... Didn't really consider myself as a you know as a fighter or as a, as a goon or uh, enforcer, uh, but I try to play the hard as I could. Like if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna try to hit you as hard as I can. And eventually, if you play in a style of hockey like that, eventually uh, you're gonna have to answer the bell. And I was not afraid of answering bell, but I didn't really. Uh, I really wasn't looking forward to getting into a fight. Oh, I imagine you weren't. And this team had so much toughness on it. You talked about how tough Chicago was. You had Luke Richards, Dennis Bonvey, yourself, Colin Forbes. Were yeah. guys constantly competing with one another for that enforcer role? No, um, and maybe that's that's why we never really had uh, in Philly, never really had that year uh, legitimate enforcer. And that's why Clarkey, I believe, bring in uh, Craig Berube and bring Sandy McCarthy to make that make that fourth line legitimate heavyweight enforcer line. And 
that's when when he bring those two in, I knew my uh, my ice time will shrink, uh, or even uh, I might be a healthy scratch. Moving ahead into mid-February, going into March, the Flyers had a bit of a rough patch, going 20 games with only two wins, six ties, and 12 losses. You yeah. were on such a good run, and it sounds like you're really enjoying yourselves, but when the, time, when the tide turns, what happens then? Again, then you look, in, look into our leadership, right? And we had such a good leader in that dressing room, Eric Desjardins, Eric Lindros, John LeClaire, uh, Keith Jones, you know, then... You as a young player, you look in, you know, and, and then we, we actually broke that slump with uh, Dallas at home when mm-hmm. we were playing in Dallas. And uh, first shift, you know, Eric Lindros' line starts, and uh, I'm looking up, and all of a sudden him and Big Darian Hatcher going toe-to-toe. God. I go, well, that, 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 that's, that's a start. And, you know, your best player going after their, their – uh, I think he was a captain back then. Team so captain and arguably their best player. Two, two captains are going at it in the first shift. I go, oh, that's a good start. And so next shift, and I just got a tap from Roger Nielsen. And I'm looking, looking, and Grand Marshall's going. Yeah. So I go, well, okay, well. And that's when me and Grand Marshall fight too. And I think that's what uh, a leadership from Eric like that, you know, says if the leaders can do this, you got to go and follow suit. You, you got to go and follow them. And I think the team, and that's where uh, we uh, broke the slump, and I think that's where it took off after that. Things definitely turn around, and that doesn't stop Trader Bobby, though, from making more trades, as you said. He brings in Craig Berube as well as Sandy McCarthy, but also Adam Burt, Mark Recchi, Michael Anderson, and Steve Duchesne. They all join the Flyers. And Guys are close on this team, it sounds like, so I'm sure they're talking. And I know where your mind was when you see these additional players come in, but what about everybody else? Are guys a little nervous that, hey, I might be losing my spot? Well, definitely. In down deep side, inside, you for sure are thinking about, okay, well, he's bringing Recky and he's bringing these guys. Is it going to affect my ice time? Sure. For sure uh, you think about that. But, again, you – Every GM is trying to make their team best as they can, whether it's going to work out or not. That's you know that's uh, that, that's a chance you take. And I thought at the time, I think Bobby Clark made a team unbeatable. That team was spectacular. Um, so, like I said, yeah, Craig Berube and Sandy McCarthy, well established heavyweights in the league. Uh, did I see my ice time dip? For sure I did. But again, I learned a lot from those two guys. I learned a lot from Mark Recchi. I learned a lot from, from everyone coming on the team. And again, we're all after the same thing. You, you're here to want a cup. So, you know, whether you're going to play that game or not, you're going to, again, you have to wait for your opportunity. And once the opportunity comes, and you better grab by the hair and run with it. So, uh, everybody obviously were happy that we're getting better. But Deep inside, you probably think, okay, well, that might affect the way I play, or maybe I won't play at all. But um, again, you might be part of something special. You're a young guy. We're getting towards the end of the season. You have settled into a place. Were you living with anyone, or were you just living on your own at this point? Oh, no, I had uh, had my girlfriend there. Oh, okay. Um, we, lived, we lived together. We live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And, and uh, yeah, she was, she was uh, definitely a help. And uh, just to have somebody to talk to and 
you know, when you're in trouble. But again, we were both young, and and uh, but it all worked out perfect. What was your impression of the famous Flyers fans? Are they en- unlike, unlike anything else you had experienced before? I mean, they're so passionate. They're so... Yes. I mean, what's it like walking around town being a member of the Philadelphia Flyers? Well, they don't really recognize me, but they definitely recognize Eric. You know, we went for lunch and one it's this little dive downtown Philly, and they all recognize him. And we end up not even paying for the lunch because they all love Eric. They're so passionate. They all... And again, so do should be. They're, they want to win the Cup. They want to win the Super Bowl. They want to win every trophy there is in major sport. So any any success is, you know, obviously that's their goal. But if you don't succeed, it could it could turn out to be uh, um, an ugly, ugly town. Uh, because like I said, because the passion of the fans, they could they cheer you on. But once you start losing, they're booyah. They expect the best. And rightfully, they should be. But, you know, sometimes it's uh, it's not happening all the time. But uh, they could definitely be supportive and they could also be destructive too. The regular season ends out on a bang with a 7-4-2 and two record after the trade deadline. With this constant revolving door, I'm sure it was hard to develop chemistry, but it seems that you guys did it. But then we get to the first round of the playoffs against the Toronto Maple Leafs and things just don't seem to go well. What do you remember about this playoff series against the Maple Leafs in the first round? I just, I just remember that uh, it wasn't good. It was quick, um, and our team was just dominated by Matt Sandin and 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 the Toronto Maple Leafs. It, it we were dominated starting from the goaltending position through the forwards, and we were just outplayed, outworked uh, for whatever reason. It. It was just a disaster. It just didn't work. Well, I'll tell you, man, it was a blast rolling through the 98-99 season with you and reliving it almost 20 years later. After this season, looking back, we just did this interview. In your career, I always ask guys, what do they consider themselves? You played for plenty of teams. Was your time with the Philadelphia Flyers your favorite in your NHL career? 100%. 100%. 100%, yes. And do you ever get back or do anything with the alumni nowadays? No, I don't. No, I don't. But I still, I still watch them. I'm still a big fan of Flyers. Um, I like, you know, I, I was a, become a very good friend with Damon Lanko, and he he continued played for the Flyers for uh, uh, several more years after after I left. Uh, we still keep in touch. Keith Jones working for him, so I'm still uh, uh, following him. I'm still a big fan, but um, I don't think. Flyers are going to win the cup anytime soon. No, it sure, it sure doesn't seem like that. But no. before we cut it off, I always let people kind of give them an open forum. Roman, what are you up to nowadays? I know you're on Twitter. How can people get a hold of you or follow you on Twitter if they want to? Yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. Um, um, but that's about it. That's the only social media I'm on. I don't have Facebook. Uh, I like, like I follow a lot of NHL teams on Twitter, but definitely the Flyers. Um, but that's about it, yeah. Want to thank Roman again for coming on. Really enjoyed his story. Really enjoyed his interview. One thing that was not included in the interview that we kind of talked about off air was why he didn't return to the NHL the next season. He actually had an opportunity to do so, but he got with his agent. They talked about it and he thought it would make more sense to go to Europe. And Roman listened to his agent. 
It was the Edmonton Oilers. They had offered him a contract, and they wanted him to start in the minor leagues. I believe they were affiliated with Hamilton at the time. And his agent advised him and said, hey, you should go to Europe. I think you'll have a better opportunity over there, and maybe you can come back at some point. And he just never returned. I think from talking to him that that was a little bit of a regret. I don't think he really regrets anything from his career, but I think he sometimes wonders what would have happened if he stuck around, and I definitely wonder what would have happened if he stuck around. I mean, you look at it, he played for four different teams in one year, and once he got traded, played pretty well with the Philadelphia Flyers. If he could have actually stayed in one spot and not had all the pressure on him, I think he might have been a 10 to 20 goal scorer. I think he was a really good player. I just don't think the opportunities were right for him in the NHL. And he went on to have a great career in Europe. So anyways, thank you again, Roman, for coming on. Had a blast chatting with you. We're going to be back next week with another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. So in the meantime, please check us out on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History, on Twitter at Snapshots In. Don't forget to check back for all of our archives for plenty of interviews. Got a couple more interviews lined up here in the next few weeks, and then we're going to go ahead and call it a season and then come back in probably September and start season two. So this is definitely going to go on, but I will say please subscribe to the podcast because I'm also going to upload some random stuff over the summer. I might do an interview or two like once a month just to keep people interested, just so people can get their hockey fix. I'm curious what everybody kind of thinks about that. But that's it. Enjoy your work week, whatever's left of it, and uh, we will see you next week for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. (laughs) 